On this edition of the program, why Mike Johnson can do exactly what Kevin McCarthy did and not get fired. Spoiler, it involves not punching people in the kidney. Will Harris and Andrew Heaton explain why a former unpopular prime minister just got a job in one of his successor's cabinets. And we get a visit from the campaign undertaker. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. I am your humble substitute host, Tom Merritt, filling in for the vacationing Justin Robert Young, who is right now, I imagine, uh, downing some kind of wonderful Eastern European beer uh, while dancing a clog, uh, and uh, is in fact quite sad that he missed a visit that we will be having shortly on this show. And I'm honored to be here for it. Uh, We also averted a government shutdown. Look at that. Uh, But in the meantime, Bernie Sanders had to break up a fight. uh, And uh, there's some punching at you. He punched me is uh, the level we're at in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, Also, two guests, uh, just because I like to show up, Justin, who asked me to do one guest, uh, Will Harris, Uh, who is uh, an entrepreneur, uh, a CEO, uh, and well-versed in the politics of his home country, the United Kingdom, uh, joins us to explain why, in heaven's name, did Prime Minister Rishi Sunak appoint former Prime Minister David Cameron to be Foreign Secretary. Uh, Cameron, extremely unpopular. Even if you don't care anything about UK politics, you're, you're going to want to Follow this weird story where a very unpopular former prime minister blamed for the UK leaving the European Union uh, was rushed into becoming a lord on Monday and then the foreign secretary uh, on Tuesday, which, by the way, he'd been prime minister. This is not the highest position he could have. So Will's going to explain that to us. And then Andrew Heaton and I are going to have a conversation about what parallels you can draw between the political situation in the UK that caused that uh, and the political situation in the United States. And uh, we we have a an argument about whether we should be positive uh, about these developments, whether whether the polarization is showing cracks. Are, are we headed towards a more moderate world or is that just wishful thinking on two moderates parts? Stick around for that. But first. It is a heavy responsibility. I didn't know if it would fall on my shoulders, but I was prepared. Friends, the campaign undertaker has called. He parted the sensibly priced curtains of Tim Scott's home, acknowledged his totally real girlfriend and said, my friend, it's time. Now, Sunday rudely after I had already recorded the Sunday Extra for the patrons, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott ended his campaign, and he did it on Fox News Channel's Sunday Night in America program. When I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending my campaign. I I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're Telling me, uh, not now, Tim. So you're saying there's a chance, Tim. You're you're going back to Iowa, just not as a presidential candidate this time. I guess he's going back to campaign. Who's he going to campaign for? He didn't endorse anybody yet. And uh, he basically said, I'll run again. Uh, Look, Justin has been pretty clearly uh, down on the campaign run by the senator. Uh, It was clear that Tim Scott was not in it for the long haul. And... 
maybe Scott was among the people overvaluing South Carolina. Uh, a lot of people looked at Biden sort of lucking into making South Carolina his launch pad last election. In fact, I was texting with Justin about this. Here's, here's what Justin wrote. Biden was an extreme outlier, and it had more to do with Bernie possibly crushing Super Tuesday that the coalescing happened. The GOP evangelical lane in Iowa is closed. We're a long way from Huckabee, Santorum, and Cruz winning from the pews. So there you go. A little poetry from Justin Robert Young on vacation. Uh, so there we go. We, we're not surprised. Nobody's surprised that Tim Scott ended his campaign. What are the upsides for Scott? He has experience running now. He's learned a lot of what not to do. Maybe maybe he'll learn from that. Uh, there are still good feelings in the GOP for him. His convention speech was very well received in 2020. So he has a chance to do a convention speech in 2024 and build on that. There'll be plenty of distance between now and then. Uh, and maybe he can polish himself up for a run in 28 or 32. 28 or 32. Wow. Uh, the other upside is that Justin has an unassailable lead in the fantasy draft. If you've been following uh, PX3, uh, he and Bill Share picked three candidates and they accrue points for every day that candidate stays in the race. Uh, the, the person with the lowest number of points wins golf rules. Justin had Pence dropped out. Scott just dropped out. And Nikki Haley. Now, Haley's still accruing days uh, and looks pretty strong. Looks like she'll be in this for a while longer. Uh, but Cher still has all three candidates in. They're all accruing days. So uh, this is this is all over but the crying. All right, let's talk about that government shutdown. Is it just me or did the impending government shutdown come with much less drama than usual? Are people getting tired of this? I mean, I know we are, but even the people prosecuting the potential government shutdowns as this passe is worrying about an impending government shutdown akin to thinking lol means lots of love or follow me here is this just a weird coalition government in hiding i have a theory it's not even a theory that's just mine a lot of people say this that there are at least four parties hiding in the U.S. Congress. Uh, they're just grouped under two names. So you've got your centrist Republicans, you got your centrist Democrats, who are different. They're not one. There's there's differences between those two centers. Uh, they carried the day while the extreme wings, uh, the, the extreme more progressives and socialists on one end and and the the extreme conservatives on the other end uh, did not carry the day. This time we got a no frills spending bill, uh, nothing attached to it, nothing riding on it, nothing else shoehorned in uh, that. That may be Mike Johnson's uh, biggest achievement is to narrow it down to just a bill where the majority of the center of, of both parties supported it. And it was the wings that didn't. Uh, if that sounds familiar, that's actually what happened last time. When Kevin McCarthy did this exact same thing, he put a continuing resolution to keep the government open, got 91 Republicans against it and one Democrat against it and got kicked out of office because he put a bill in that Democrats voted for. This time, Mike Johnson, as Speaker of the House, pulls a bill because he doesn't have the votes, changes it up, puts it in. Gets two Democrats to vote against it. So he doubled Democratic opposition. I guess maybe that's enough. Two Democrats voted against it and 93 Republicans voted against it. So he gained two Republican opponents to his continuing resolution. There's no noise about anybody calling for Johnson's job yet. It seems like he has done almost exactly the same thing as McCarthy, uh, but he's safe because nobody wants to go through that again. Also. Uh, just to be clear, this doesn't solve the problem. It just kicks it down the road to January, by which time, I don't know, we may have had new speakers. Who knows? Uh, but it's a slim bill. Like I said, no foreign aid. Uh, it's just what needed to be done. Uh, it's broken up into two parts uh, to make it easier to deal with down the road. Almost like a government process. Almost working. Almost. Check this out. 
You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Is that your Sorry. solution? Every poll. Oh. No, no, sit down. Oh, Eric, sit down. Okay. You know, you're okay. a United States senator. Sit Actively. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Shim. it. Hold it. If Hold we can't, no, I have the mic. Said. I'm sorry. This is Hold what it. he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> that is Oklahoma Senator Mark Wayne Mullen taking off his ring. You couldn't see that. Took off his ring when he stood up to confront a union official uh, who was testifying. And of course, absolutely recognizable the voice of 82 year old senator bernie sanders telling the kids to behave <laughs> your senators stop it sit down oh and by the way representative tim burkett uh, accused kevin mccarthy of kidney punching him in the hall uh mccarthy says he didn't do it uh his, his elbow was sticking out he didn't know the kidney would be there <laughs> kevin mccarthy still throwing punches maybe allegedly by one of the other representatives getting rough in there though. All right. So here's the details on this continuing resolution. Uh, it gives funding for four bills, uh, covering agencies involved with veterans programs, military construction, transportation, housing, agriculture, and energy until January 19th. So everything's cool till January 19th for those four funding bills. Agencies covered under eight other bills, which includes the rest of defense, the State Department, Homeland Security, uh, among others, are extended until February 2nd. So the idea is we don't have just one deadline. Uh, They could actually pursue funding for the four bills first, as long as they get those done by January 19th, and the eight bills next to get those done by February 2nd and not need a continuing resolution. That seems to be what Mike Johnson's saying he wants to do. He would like to actually pass a budget for 2024 and not just keep spending at 2023 rates, which is what has been happening. These are continuing resolutions saying, well, we'll just keep spending what we were spending for now. Uh, So anyway, that bill that kicks the can down the road to January goes to the U.S. Senate. It is expected to pass uh, in time for the deadline on Friday, and the U.S. government will not shut down. Um, In practice, we don't know. We might just be looking at the government partially shutting down January 19th. While the U.S. government might shut down, uh, the biggest political news in the world this week was the odd cabinet reshuffle in the United Kingdom. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak bringing back a former prime minister, a former, as I understand it, very unpopular prime minister, David Cameron, uh, to become the foreign secretary after firing the home secretary because of how she reacted to a protest. It's very confusing, even for someone like me that follows this. So very thankfully, uh, we have Will Harris joining us uh, to explain this to us. Uh, Will, you you are a subject uh, of the crown, uh, of course, uh, and uh, and an entrepreneur and, and someone who follows this. Thanks for joining us. No, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. It has been um, certainly an interesting week to be following British politics. And it's something that, you know, David Cameron coming back into office is something that has really rocked the um, the political world. In fact, one of the most fun things you can do at the moment is go on TikTok and search for Cabinet Reshuffle Live and just watch the bemused reactions <laughs> of all the um, on-air correspondents who are being told in real time that David Cameron is turning up and they're all going, well, why is David Cameron turning up? Why is David Cameron here? Is yeah. David Cameron coming back? We're just hearing that. It, it makes for very amusing television. No, I've watched so, it. Yeah, those okay. myself. Those are those, they are great. Uh, well, let's start with a, with a, what what is a cabinet reshuffle? What what does that actually mean? So a cabinet reshuffle is something that's um, a little bit unique to to the UK, certainly compared to the States. So obviously there are the the, the big minutes, sort of ministerial departments, whether that's the Department of Defence, the Foreign Secretary, the Health Secretary, the Home Secretary, sort of domestic issues. And generally what happens is that people don't get hired or fired out of one post. Um, a reshuffle, as it's called, is an excuse to fire one or two people and then move everybody else around into different departments. And as if 
say, shuffle things up. It's a chance to get rid of people that aren't performing well, bring in some new people who might be up and comers in the party. And it's a chance to kind of, you know, in many senses, governments use it to reset where they are and where their agenda is. This particular reshuffle um, has come about, as you mentioned, because of um, the former now Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who um, made herself extremely unpopular last week by... Um, She's been well known in, in British politics as being quite to the, to the far right of um, the, the Conservative Party, which is itself a right of centre party. Um, she has caused controversy with um, her, view, her, her sort of political stance on exporting refugees who arrive in Britain to Rwanda, which has been um, quite an unpopular position. But that was start, wrote, started under it, the Johnson uh, reign, started, right? Yeah, so, she, so like, she was there and has carried yeah, it through. Yeah, um, she wrote an editorial last week for the Times of London newspaper um, in which she out said, you know, made a claim that um, living in tents if you are homeless was a lifestyle choice, which was not a particularly popular point of didn't view. Didn't go down well. And not only did not only did not go down well. Um, as she is supposed to, she, she, every minister, if they write an editorial of that sort, is supposed to run it past number 10, the prime minister's office, in case the prime minister wants changes. The prime minister specifically requested changes and the home secretary specifically didn't make them, mm -hmm. which um, left him with a little bit of an authority problem. So rather than just say, okay, we're going to sack the home secretary for, for sort of basically insubordination and poor, poor performance. Um, the, the, the more chic way to do it is to reshuffle everybody and she gets the sack as part of it. And so there are a number of new cabinet members that have come in, a number that have departed, and um, the Home Secretary is one of them. Um, and one of the people coming back, um, as you said, is David Cameron, <laughs> who is... Um, you know, for people who don't remember, um, David Cameron was Prime Minister um, of the UK and the leader of the Tory party between 2010 and 2016. Um, he won the 2010 election um, against the Labour Party um, in a coalition, which he ended up in with the, the, the sort of very liberal, um, liberal Democrats. Um, then in 2016, he won that election outright, uh, giving his party majority. Um, one of his election promises was to put to the people um, a vote on whether or not Britain should stay within the European Union. And we all know how that went. <laughs> um, so David Cameron campaigned quite forcefully for Britain to stay in the EU. The people voted to go out of the EU. And so once that vote came in, he resigned both as prime minister and as a member of parliament. So he left parliament what, and, entirely. Famously promised to stick around and like what? Stuck around for two weeks before he hijacked <laughs> it, right? Yeah. Yes, went back to, um, and was then, well, he, he stuck around in the sense that he was then latterly in COVID involved in quite a large lobbying <laughs> scandal too, right? where, he, where he helped a friend of his get some COVID contracts through the, uh, through the Johnson government. So he stuck around in that sense. But other than a sort of slightly poorly received memo, nobody has really heard much um, from David Cameron in the past, uh, you know, seven years at all. Um, so it's worth saying that in British politics, it's not unprecedented to have a party leader come back having been party, party leader and come and do something else. So indeed, um, William Hague was the Conservative Party leader when the Conservatives were in opposition between 1997 and 2001. Tony Blair was Prime Minister. Um, he lost an election against Tony Blair and stepped down as leader of the Tories, but um, stayed on as, a, as an MP. Mm -hmm. And indeed, David Cameron appointed William Hague then to come and be foreign secretary um, in 2010 after, oh uh, after Cameron won. So there's a little bit of form there. Um, but what's different here is that it is, I think, unheard of to have somebody come straight from not even being an MP anymore into one of the, what they call the, the, the great roles of state, um, in this case, foreign secretary. And the mechanics of how that has been done is in fact quite interesting because generally to be um, a, a foreign secretary or one of those key ministerial roles, you need to be an MP. Um, David Cameron resigned as an MP in 2017. So what Rishi Sunak has had to do is um, call the king up on the phone and say, could you please uh, make David Cameron a lord um, so that he can sit in the House of Lords because technically 
um, someone who sits in the House of Lords is also eligible to be one of those um, great officers of state. So, it could well, be th- this is a, a holdover, right? Where the king is technically the head of state. Everything has to be approved by the king, but the tradition is the king just approves whatever the parliament wants, or else uh, maybe he would lose his position as king, right? Um, <laughs> well, and, lose, and lose his head if historical, poss- possibly uh, historically, historical even lose more, right? Yeah. And the House of Lords is in sort of the same position. All of their power has devolved to the House of Commons, but it's still technically the equivalent to the Senate in the United States. It's just not supposed to cause too much trouble or else the Commons might try to get rid of the House of Lords. Is, is that, yes. I, Kerry, is that's, that roughly the... That's exactly on? right. Okay. The, um, the House of Lords is seen generally as a house for um, conversation, for debate and for approval. Um, and in fact, Tony, it used to be the case that the, that the House of Lords could vote down legislation much as the Senate can in the States now. Um, Tony Blair passed legislation that took away um, that right um, back in the noughties. So the House of Lords is now a, a debating and, and sort of sanity checking chamber. Um, so David Cameron has been overnight made a member of the House of Lords as a member of the House of Lords has then been invited in to come and be foreign secretary. He's technically part um, of the parliament. So that lets them, you know, have a good appearances of like, oh, it's a member of parliament, just a lord, not a commons. So, yes, exactly. Not a He's a member of the House of Lords, not a member of the, the, the House of Commons, but is technically then a member of Parliament. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of chicanery there. Um, and also and there we should is be little... recalling him Lord Cameron now, technically. So, yes, exactly. And Lord Cameron of where, we don't know. His his home is Chipping Norton, so maybe he'll be Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton. But um, so, so very rare for that to come in. And it's also interesting in that he can't actually sit in the House of Commons. So if, for example, the opposition... Um, the Labour Party, as it is now, have questions that they want to put to the Foreign Office, as it currently sits, um, David Cameron can't go into the House of Commons and answer them. So we'd have to have a deputy answer them. So there is currently some wrangling around parliamentary procedure going on um, around whether or not David Cameron, Lord Cameron, can be allowed to come in and answer questions for the purposes of answering questions. Um, what Where it gets, you know, particularly interesting and this is a show that's all about the politics and we know that it's all about you know not just the politics but also the politics and the politics um and the thing about the politics here is that it's an extraordinary move for rishi sunak people are calling it desperate people are calling it retrograde people are calling it genius but the facts are this um at the conservative party conference last month rishi sunak stood up and in his keynote speech said that his conservatives, his government going forward, would make a break from the failed politics of the past 30 years, where he lumped in Tony Blair, David Cameron, all together and said, you are the failed politics of the past. Um, Which obviously many people, many political sources have said, you know, that characterization rather infuriated David Cameron. It is therefore particularly odd um, that having called you know, David Cameron, part of the failed politics of the past, he would then invite him to come back and be one of the foremost, foremost important people in government. Um, it's a, it's a very odd position. I think the, the second thing that people are saying is that it is a, you know, it's a retrograde move. Is there, is there really none of the other 200 odd Tory MPs that are in parliament that could have done this? And if there is nobody in those 200 that could have done it, what does that say about the state of the Conservative Party today? Out of ideas, out of brains, mm. out of sort of fresh faces to do anything, resorting to bringing back the past. Um, so there is a bit of a knock there on it. You know, it makes the party look incredibly weak and it makes the government look like they're running out of steam. Um, it has political consequences for Rishi Sunak in that the person that, you know, has sort of instigated all of this, Suella Braverman is very popular with the right wing of the party. She is a um, a great spokesperson for the people who are much more hardline on immigration, much more hardline on um, domestic policy. And he really risks upsetting those people within his own party, which could put his own premiership at risk. It only takes, uh, I think, 40 votes, 40 letters of no confidence to uh, to cause a change in, in leader in the Tory party, um, as we saw with Liz Truss last year. Um, so it could well be that he infuriates enough people that he puts himself in jeopardy. 
Um, and it's worth noting that part of the reason that, you know, it's not just Suella Braverman's popularity that is aggravating, you know, um, MPs. Rishi Sunak, we must remember, is sitting as prime minister on a uh, majority that he inherited from the Boris Johnson election of 2019. So since 2019, when Boris Johnson became prime minister in something of a landslide, he came into power on what was called the um, the Red Wall or the Red Wave. It was a whole bunch of working class, traditionally Labour voters who decided Labour has become too elite or too crazy or too weird. Boris is one of us. We're going to vote for Boris. Yeah, this is um, this is very similar to what you, what you see in the United <laughs> States, right? With the working class voting for exactly. Trump. Right. Yeah, yeah. The working class voting for Trump. Very much the same phenomenon. They were grouped together in this sort of populist wave of 2016. And it tends to be the case if, when polled, these um, the working class red wall voters, as they're called, tend to be more hardline on immigration, tend to be more aligned with the policies of someone like Suomi Braverman. And yet a lot of the people that they elected as MPs might be more moderate. And so there is a feeling amongst those MPs that they have now been hung out to dry, which is Rishi Sunak, by appointing Cameron, has moved the party quite a long way back towards the centre from the right. And therefore, all the MPs that got elected on being quite far right when the next election comes up next year are possibly quite screwed. It's it's fascinating to me just from an electoral politics situation. So, so I have read some things that say that there are cabinets that are policy oriented where you put ministers, maybe not worked in the industry, but but worked on the issues as members of parliament in charge of those cabinets. And that's how you identify a policy oriented cabinet. Uh, and that Sunak is not doing that. He, he is entirely a politically oriented cabinet. Uh, people in charge of the the different departments do not necessarily have the experience having worked on those issues because these are ways to keep people in line. So in that sense, I understand why you don't just swap out Braverman uh, with with the I mean, the the ideal electoral thing would have been to grab someone from that red wall area in the north. Right. And put them in that position. But what I'm suspecting is Sunak wanted to uh, send a message to a few other people he'd been meaning to at the time. So took this opportunity to do the shuffle that you described. Uh, so you move the foreign secretary into the home secretary uh, position so that you can open up some other things. And there were there were a couple other minor moves, as I understand it, uh, as well. But then why David Cameron? Why wouldn't you then appoint someone from, you know, the Redwall District or, or at least someone of Braverman's, you know, right wing side into whatever open slot you shuffle open instead of Cameron, who, as you described, is incredibly unpopular. Uh, one of the least ranked in popularity of, of all prime ministers. You're doing a precedent setting thing uh, because the last time a prime minister was even brought into uh, a position after being prime minister was uh, what's his name? Alec Douglas home in 1970. Yes, 1970. Yeah. yeah. So it's been a while since something like that happened. And Cameron, as, as I understand it, is maybe popular in the southeast of the country where there are very safe Tory seats that you probably don't need that much help with. So, Will, why? 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 Why would he <laughs> well, do that? Is the, so there are there are two. I mean, that is the question that everybody's asking. And there are two possible answers to that question. So it's worth noting, in fact, that um, the media uh, scuttlebutt this morning is that David Cameron wasn't even the first choice oh. of former Tory leader uh -huh. to come back to this position. That, in fact, Rishi Sunak approached um, now Lord William Hague, so former leader that we talked about who had been foreign secretary under Cameron. Um, he's been something of a mentor to Rishi Sunak. And in fact, Rishi Sunak took over Haig's um, seat as an MP when Haig mm -hmm. retired from, from Parliament. But actually, Haig was the first person that he approached to bring back. Um, Haig declined and suggested Cameron. So Cameron is, in hmm. fact, the second choice. Um, the, the prevailing political theory as to why you would do it goes something like this. 
The Conservatives are currently polling. If you know, if a general election was held tomorrow, they are polling at about twenty three percent to Labour's forty four percent, and that is a, a a catastrophic wipeout that would be possibly worse than the nineteen ninety seven Tony Blair sweep when Labour came into power with with an unprecedented number of seats, and what really catapulted Tony Blair, obviously, to um, to be the international character that he is today. Now. If you believe that you are not going to win at all, mm. that there is no hope of winning, that those seats that were the red wall seats um, with the election of a new Labour leader in, in Sir Keir Starmer, um, that those red wall seats are, are sort of lost, that you are unlikely to get them back, you might choose to shore up your defences in sort of south of England where someone like Cameron is more popular mm -hmm. and where your more centrist policies might play a little bit better. So there is a theory that this is not Rishi Sunak uh, making a you know an interesting policy decision, but is in fact an attempt to minimise what will be the inevitable losses of a general election next year. Um, there are... So instead of a red wall, it's a blue hedge. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. The red wall has been demolished. We've now got a very sort of pokey fence. Um, the um, the other theory, you know, it's worth noting that this this while strange, this has not been universally criticised. Um, there is a the second theory is that if the um, you know if the Conservatives are sort of doomed to um, to lose the next election anyway. The worst thing they could do is, as they see it, um, is follow the Republican Party and take a swerve to the right in opposition. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, Lord Heseltine, Michael Heseltine, former, um, I believe, former Home Secretary um, under Margaret Thatcher, has said um, this morning, David Cameron will save the Tories from a great lurch to the right um, in a way that would undermine any possible chance of a comeback um, in the same way that we've seen, I think, a lot of um, Republican politicians take a huge swerve to the right under Donald Trump, which has made certain areas potentially unelectable for them. So I think the theory, whether you believe it's, it's, it's now or the future, comes down to damage limitation. Mm -hmm. Which, as you say, if, if Rishi is more of a political man than a, than a policy man, would seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And it... And Probably not the main reason for doing it, but it has a nice side effect of of uh, sweeping Braverman out of the headlines because all everyone is talking about is Cameron. They're no longer talking about her being eliminated. So it, it kind of washed that whole scandal to the side. And what it does is potentially keep the center of gravity in the party at the center mm -hmm. because what Rishi is thinking about sort of the three steps down the future, um, there, there is a... Uh, not even a conspiracy theory, a widely um, a widely held belief that in writing that letter to the Times last week that kicked off this whole kerfuffle, um, Suella Braveman was in fact trying to get herself sacked yeah. so that it would agitate the right of the party enough when she got sacked, such that when the Conservatives lost the next election, Chicken. she could challenge Ricky Sunak and become the next leader of the Conservative Party, albeit in opposition. Yeah. So there is a theory that, in, in fact, you know, it's it's a possibly a little bit of job preservation because by kicking Suella Braverman out, by keeping the center of gravity in the center rather than going to the right, that Rishi is in fact preserving his own ass mm -hmm. when it uh, when it inevitably is put on the line uh, next year. It, one last question, and I don't know if either one of us are qualified to answer this, but it, I just want to bring it up because uh, I know somebody in the audience is thinking it. Is there any? thing that Cameron brings to the job, particularly related to the Middle East, possibly Ukraine, but I'm thinking more about Israel and Gaza, uh, that Sunak looks at and says, well, he's got relationships, he's he's got connections that, that will actually help. All of these political reasons are the main reasons, but we also need that. So... There is a great answer to that, which is, yes, David Cameron is incredibly well-liked by other world leaders. He is incredibly well-liked on the world stage um, as the, you know, he, he has seen really more of a um, successor to Tony Blair than mm -hmm. a successor to any other um, Tory leader in that he was very 
to the center of the center of the center right when he was um, in government. He has great connections with the leading players in the Middle East. He had um, he was a great proponent of, of managing to negotiate and agree new deals with China, for example. So there is a huge element to which David Cameron does, you know, does bring incredible international political expertise that he can deploy. And if you were being, um, you know, Rishi Sunak comes from a, from a management consultancy background. And if you were putting the management consultancy hat on, you would say, I'm going to outsource the absolute nightmare uh. that is foreign policy to this very well qualified chap over here. Meanwhile, my job is to try and focus on domestic policy and win the next election, which we all know is one on domestic policy, not foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit of a divide, you know, Rishi Sunak could easily spend the next 18 months of his political career tied up in the Middle East, the Ukraine, Russia, China, etc., and have no time for politicking at home um, in the lead up to a general election. By outsourcing this, he allows himself to focus on um, on what's immediately in front of him. Uh, Will, thank you so much. I can't I can't thank you enough uh, for for helping me wrap my head around this. I think I have a much better understanding of it now. Well, I hope you and the audience too. Um, yeah. Look forward to uh, to seeing the, to seeing the comments and the feedback afterwards. Yeah, and and uh, for those not in the UK, I, I think it is enlightening to see the parallels. To, to you see the, there are obviously lots of things that are very different. Uh, the, not the least of which the prime minister could just get rid of people in the cabinet, uh, you know, whenever they want. Versus in most countries where you have to have someone else uh, do approval. But 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 also the 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 political lines that are similar uh, in other countries. Um, Will, thank you again. If uh, folks want to find out what you're doing, where should they go? They can go to uh, unbound.com where they can see uh, a great selection of our fantastic new books, um, which we would encourage everybody to have a look at. And uh, yes, support British business. I'll do my bit for the UK government. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Thanks again, Will. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure. Okay, those are the facts from a person who lives inside the actual country and interacts with its government. But let's get an outsider's view from an honorary Scot, the host of The Political Orphanage, alienating the audience and co-host of We're Not Wrong, Andrew Heaton. Welcome, Heaton. A pleasure to be back on PX3 with the true spiritual host of it, Tom Merritt the fun substitute teacher we all know and love. <laughs> ah, thank you, my friend. Yes. Uh, some substitute teachers just put on a movie. I bring in Heaton. Uh, and I think this is the superior move. Uh, thank you. I uh, Yes, I'm, I'm slightly better than watching a, a PSA from the 1980s <laughs> on why seatbelts are important. Or, yeah, or, 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 that or, the, or the PBS version of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, um, I, I also I apologize to you and listeners if I sound a bit hoarse. I have literally spent the last three days in the United Kingdom yelling at British people, but in a good way. Yeah. Like like we're all we're all at a bar and it's loud and I'm yelling. It was loud. It was agreements. happy happy, joyful caterwauling right. that has, right. has reduced me to my, my, what, what I assume sounds a bit more smokerish than usual. You were, you were yelling, you know, what you should do is bring back an old prime minister. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I can't Nobody believed me. Like, who, who's going to be our foreign minister when, when she's inevitably kicked to the cub. And I went, well, you know what I'd do? I'd call up some guy all of you unanimously like in retrospect that David Cameron, you know, he's so popular that they're thinking about making him a Lord. You should make him your foreign secretary. It was, it was a prophecy. Um, but all, all joking aside, you have subsumed yourself, uh, in the UK. Uh, you make regular pilgrimages there. I do. Um, I do. I feel like Will Harris did a very good job of explaining, uh, what I thought might be unexplainable. Um, uh, as a fan of British politics though, I'm curious what you make of this. And I want to explore some of those parallels that Will alluded to between U S politics and, uh, UK politics. But, but let's start with, do you remember where you were when you heard David Cameron had been appointed as the new foreign yes. minister? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was in a WhatsApp group at the, uh, the, the, the Manchester airport, which by the way, Manchester seems nice, but I've literally had cavity searches that were less, uh, long than that airport experience coming out of that. I went right after this really, really long period. I find that out. Uh, yeah, I discovered that. And, and thank you for your shout out as an honorary Brit or quarter Brit or whatever I am right now. I, I was I had to I did a comedy sketch while uh, in Liverpool uh, and, and and pretended to be a lord 
And when I came off, the staff was genuinely surprised to discover that I live in Texas. So I can at least <laughs> go undercover and pretend to be a stodgy 60-year-old Englishman when I need to. Um, and, and I do. I spend a lot of time in the United Kingdom. So I, if, if ever we elect a sane president and I become a billionaire, I believe I would be a great ambassador to the United Kingdom or an independent Scotland if either of those should arise. I, I, I support this uh, entirely uh, f- from that position as Oklahoma's leading uh, UK observer. Uh, it, it, do you think Will was right? Like that this is essentially Sunak giving up uh, winning the next election and just just trying to shore up the base? Yes, I do. I, I think that this was a stability play. Uh, I, I going going through the various things that that could be here. Um, I, I kind of I'm 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 playing with different scenarios. Scenario one: uh, Richie Sunak owes a favor to David Cameron. That doesn't mm-hmm. seem terribly likely to me at this point. He's 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 been long enough. Possible. I mean, maybe they were buddies back in the day. Maybe they're in the same sex cult or something. And I who knows? I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Um, stability makes the most sense to me from a political position, as I'm sure Will brought up there, I think, on the third prime minister since 2019. That's a lot of prime ministers to go through. That's not quite Greek, but a and lot only less one direct. election. Boris Johnson was the only exactly. one who came in. They don't elect the prime minister directly, but he was the only one that came in to prime ministership during right. an election. Well, although I, I, I should note the Brits think they do. Mm. When, when you you and I are aware that uh, the, the British system is you vote for your member of parliament and, and then parliament, not the masses, votes for the prime minister, who's the head of parliament. Parliament selected. That is not how British people think in my experience. Yeah, yeah. They, they they very much they, in the same way that maybe more technically someone goes, well, actually, you don't vote for president. You vote for vote the for electoral elector. college, yeah. except that the, the electoral college is a rubber stamp for that. Um, they, they tend to think of it that way. And you're absolutely right. Um, they've had um, in the last they've had two elections and five prime ministers. In the last few years, right? So they so they uh, um, they had David Cameron, who did get elected by a very very thin majority. He he got elected because basically the Lib Dems imploded at the same time that Scotland decided it it, it was tired of being Labour. It was going to become S and P. So the electoral map changes. Not that he had an overwhelming win. It's that the other guys sucked and it all fell apart. And he was able to eke out a victory. Um, he, as everybody will recall was the one that decided to have a referendum on the European Union because he thought he could win it. Uh, that turned out to not be the case. He stepped down after that happened. Theresa May came in um, uh, and then uh, she steps down. There's another election. Boris Johnson comes in. Um, but there there have been, I guess, to put this since David Cameron, there there's been one election and four prime ministers. The order is a little convoluted here, but there's not been a lot of stability. I think that's very much on the, the British mind. Um, Richie Sunak, uh, if he is. Like most politicians I know, he believes in uh, himself tremendously uh, and hopes that he can somehow pull this out. But um, the, the likelihood that that uh, the conservatives are going to be able to take this, I think, is very minimal. So I, I think that this is overall a stability play more than anything else. There's some suspicion that this is uh, ideological um, and that they're they're. When, when we're talking about the Conservative Party or the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or the S&P and British politics, very similar to the United States, uh, they're not really parties. They're coalitions of different parties. And uh, part of what you got to do is figure out who the person is inside of that. So um, with Labour Party, Tony Blair is a you know open pro-trade neoliberal character, very different than Jeremy Corbyn, who comes from the the, the socialist wing of the Labour family. And with Rishi Sunak. Um, there's some question as to like, well, is he that kind of Thatcherite, classical liberal, slapping Hayek on a counter type conservative, or is he a Boris Johnson? Let's uh, let's say some stuff about transgender and see if we can get people angry. Maybe this will turn into where is he running from? So it's possible that this is reshuffling based on ideological lines, and that turns out deep down, Rishi Sunak is a centrist, moderate, classical liberal. Tory, and he's trying to bring somebody in to strengthen his position on the cabinet. Um, that is a possibility. I think that would actually make sense if he's taking a defeatist position where he's looking at this going, I'm only in here for a limited amount of time. Let's try and get my agenda in as hard as we can. I think more likely, though, it's a stability play. And that what he's trying to do is reassure people, look, remember this old guy 
Remember, you, you haven't thought about them in a while. Typically, when people leave office and they don't pose a threat, that's when we lionize them. Yeah, that's when we go. It's no one usually, loved Nixon more than at the end of his life, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And like, or we're just like, I think Dole used to talk about like you're not a statesman until you're dead. It's only yeah. when you're dead that you become a statesman. Up until then, you're just a defeated politician. So he's a he's a statesman because he's a de- defeated politician. Uh, and in the same way that like in America, like. Weirdly, George W. Bush was rehabilitated in the mm-hmm. Trump years where it was like, oh, he's old, cute. He's he not so Mi- bad. He yeah. gives Michelle Obama candy at funerals. They like each other. He paints. Um, so I think that's part of it is that, that Cameron is reassuring and uh, and that he's a known commodity. And so rather than having yet another name that everybody has to learn uh, and, and figure out where they're at, you're getting a predictable, steady hand. Whether or not you want that steady hand, it, there's at least a, a trajectory and direction you feel emotionally comfortable with as opposed to um, having to learn everything and debate what's going to happen. Now, one of the other things that we were talking about earlier was uh, that red wall that I mentioned uh, was a lot of working class uh, voters traditionally supporting labor and switching to supporting Boris Johnson uh, because of a populist appeal. And this David Cameron position uh, does not appeal to the red wall. It might appeal to some some very traditional centrist Tories in the southeast of the country, but you weren't likely to lose those anyway. Um, but but you know, maybe if you're going to do badly enough, you want to shore them up. Uh, and that makes sense to me. That sounds like America to a lot of people. That sounds like, oh, I've been hearing, you know, there's a lot of working class folks voting for Trump, uh, union members voting for Trump. Uh, is is that the same? Is it is, is it similar, do you think? I think there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, so like in the States, when when I was growing up in the 90s, um, if you watched The Simpsons, the Republicans, whenever they were brought in as a group, were Mr. Burns, the factory owner, Dr. Hibbert, a white collar professional and a vampire. And that was the Troika, which defined Republican right. politics. That was the coalition of Newt yes, Gingrich. Me- yeah. Me- me- meanwhile, the Democrats were Joe Quimby. They were the crooked but delightful working class blue collar union guy. That was it was a very, a very clear and cartoonish portrayal back in the 90s. And, and that is largely changed. So um, now, like when, when I worked for the House of Representatives at the time, um, the Republican Party had more college degrees in it than the Democratic Party, which was part of that worldview was, well, the Republicans tend to be older. They tend to have more money. Therefore, they've gone to college more. The Democrats are working class. Therefore, there's fewer collegiate that that's no longer the case. Uh, now, the case is that, you know, odds are probabilistically, if you've got a master's degree, you're more likely to be a Democrat than a Republican. And you start getting into professions. The managerial class is much more Democratic and the Republicans are shifting towards the dive bar party. And so you're seeing this incredible realignment in American politics right now where uh, working class union type people are apt to vote Republican and go for Trump or or go for the governor of Florida or anything like that. And and Democrats less likely to be the guy fixing your air conditioner, more likely to be the guy reading The New Yorker. Um, so that that alignment is happening. And I think that's happening in, in Britain as well. And it shouldn't be that surprising either. Um, the, the, the conservative party in the United Kingdom is a, a permanent amalgam. It does not have a a bedrock ideological core to it. So like you go back to like the time of John Stuart Mill, the debates were between the the Tories, the conservative party and the liberals. And at that time, the Tories were straight up landed gentry aristocracy. That was their thing is they were defending the old system of institutions, monarchy and class against these newfangled John Stuart Mill types. And then uh, that goes on for a while. And then Labor Party pops up. You get the, uh, you know, the, the kind of almost socialist um, Marxist leaning that way. I don't know if they'd say it, but that kind of direction takes the wind out of the sails of the liberals. Um, and the, the conservatives kind of adjust as they go on. They're not they're not advocating for, like, you know, uh, uh, building more castles and, and creating more lords. Um, they kind of oscillate between having a platonic core or just being very pragmatic, which Mm -hmm. is something that distinguishes them tremendously from American conservatives. American conservatives, and Trump is a very, very big exception to this, tend to run and rhetorically communicate with each other ideologically. Uh, Republican primaries are, within my lifetime, a contest to see who is the heir of Ronald Reagan and who is a rhino. 
and they're very ideologically driven. The conservatives don't do that in the United Kingdom, not not nearly to the same extent. Um, the 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 two camps there, if we want to get philosophical about it, are there. There's the the liberal group or the, the classical liberal group, the Thatcherites, um, that that I think Liz Truss and maybe Rishi Sunak is in. Um, and then there's the kind of proceduralists that don't particularly have a core or a direction they're trying to get to. They're they're concerned with um, slow incremental reform, and they just kind of go in and go, look, you know, the system we currently have, we're going to do a slightly better job with this than the other guys. They're idiots. And they, they make a pitch based on pragmatism, right? It is not surprising to me, therefore, that the conservatives would move that direction in the same way that the conservative party is over time transformed from landed gentry to sort of taking the liberal position and, mm-hmm. and, and the classically abs- liberal position. Yeah, exactly. the, yeah, like literally absorbing the the body of their previous enemies. Mm-hmm. It, there's there's nothing to stop that from happening. Uh, and, and, and on the flip side, that's happened, I think, in labor to a great extent. Like I mentioned Tony Blair earlier. I don't think Tony Blair had that much overlap with Jeremy Corbyn. I think Tony Blair would fit in pretty well with David Cameron. My thesis that I'm putting together as we talk uh, is that we are just now starting to see the very earliest glimmers of the swing back to the middle. I don't know if the pendulum's done swinging to the extremes, but the assumption has been uh, we're getting more extreme. Uh, Ideology is getting more extreme. Dialogue is getting more extreme. And we've talked about the UK and the US, but that's also happening in places like Germany. It's happening in places like Italy. Uh, and, and so in the Western world, particularly, even although, the Netherlands, which is usually a poster child right. of everybody, yeah, getting yeah. Along, they're setting farms on fire. Exactly. Um, and, and it's also happening in Latin America and, and, and other places as well. It's even happening a little bit in the democracies in, in Asia doesn't seem to be happening in China so much. Um, but the, the point here is that we, we have gotten into the habit of thinking, well, we, we now live in a more, uh, uh, opposed society, diametrically opposed, polarized, uh, society, uh, I wonder if two things that I saw in today's show uh, point that maybe those pressures, you know, eventually start to equalize. Uh, One, we just had a vote for continuing resolution of funding the United States government that was almost exactly the same vote that got Kevin McCarthy tossed out. Uh, In fact, there was one more Democrat and two more Republicans voting against the continuing resolution this time, which would make it more polarizing. Uh, But I don't think Johnson's going to get tossed out as Speaker of the House. I think we're done with that. I think people are tired of that. There's no rumblings of this being the end of Johnson the way it was just a month ago, the end of McCarthy. Then we have this situation in the United Kingdom where Rishi Sunak doesn't go more extreme uh, when Braverman gets in trouble. Uh, Instead, he gets rid of someone perceived as extreme and brings in the the opposite of extreme, the black hole of of extremity. I mean, David Cameron was campaigning for climate change uh, combating back in the day. And and if if I'm not mistaken, David Cameron's government is also the government that legalized gay marriage. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe I'm overinterpreting it uh, and and maybe this is just a blip, but I, I see that that through line in, in today's stories anyway, that like, well, you know, eventually the pressures will push back to, you know what, let, let's work together. God, I hope you're right. Uh, this, <laughs> this, maybe it's just wishful this, thinking, right? <laughs> this is something that I, I think about a lot. And I, I've been working on a book on tribalism for about five years now. So I've been doing a tremendous amount of research on this. And one of the bedeviling questions to um, the effective polarization that we're having today. So anybody unfamiliar with this term, uh, effective polarization is just hating each other. So like ideological polarization would be like uh, if Tom was really in favor of garden gnome subsidies and I was very much opposed to garden gnome subsidies and our ideological polarization was extreme. Effective polarization is Tom and I actually have pretty similar positions on garden gnome subsidies, but I hate Tom mm-hmm. because he's a Democrat and he hates me because I'm a Republican. And the effective polarization is incredibly high. Uh, it's more high in the United States than it is in the United Kingdom and other countries, but it's still high. And my experience is it's plenty high in the United Kingdom as it is. Um what it, what is the instigating factor that has changed that? If you go back to the 80s and 90s, um, there was a lot less effective polarization. Um, this is somewhat anecdotal, but it does seem to me that 
the the sense of personal identity people derived from political party was much less than it is today. Um, I had relatives that were from Oklahoma that were Democrats because that was just the biggest party in town. So they they did it in the same way that you and I would go to the grocery store near our house. It had nothing to do with their deep personal status. Yeah, right. That's all changed. Um, so some of the different models that we could look at in terms of what what is the instigating factor that has altered this. Um, one, which I think you're alluding to, would almost be climatological in nature. The idea that there's a sort of broad undulating system and that it's operating like a pendulum and that it's going to swing back and forth between effective polarization and kumbaya. Um, I hope that is the case, uh, uh, although I think my whole career will somehow be juxtaposed to that. So I I, I, I would do very well in a, in a country run by calm moderates. I, I don't think I'm going to I don't I, I think I missed that wave uh, and I, I'm OK with that. Also, it'd be great for the country. Um, but I, um, I don't think that's the case though. I, I don't think that it's just based on a pendulum. I, I don't know of any, any patterns that I can detect that would indicate that this is something that happens regularly. Obviously in American politics, there have been greater times of, of, um, of discord, which have occurred like the, like, like the civil war, or even the 1960s. I mean, as bad as it is right now, we're not regularly shooting civil rights leaders and politicians. Um, so it has been worse. Um, my inclination is to think that this is less to do with uh, just kind of a, a swing of the pendulum. I, I think that it's probably technological at root. Uh, and the reason that I say that is that, as you rightly point out, Tom, it is something that is affecting not just the United States, but many developed countries with different electoral systems. Because that would be the other thing I would go to is that, um, as I frequently chide Justin about, I'm a very, very big proponent of top five open primaries and ranked choice voting, which I think would do a lot to build consensus in the United States. But then you go to countries that have similar systems to that. Scotland, where I spent a lot of time in, has uh, um, list MPs. So that is to say, or list SMPs. I'm going to vote for my my local district in um, Goat Cankle County. Uh, and, uh, I'm going to vote for that guy, but I'm also going to vote for the party that I want. And that, that allows for there to be greater representation of third parties and so on and so forth. But the effect of polarization in Scotland remains very high. Uh, and I don't know about all the other countries you mentioned, but I do know that they have different electoral systems. Um, Israel has something that would be interesting, which is they have just one giant congressional district that everybody runs in, which I would think would be palliative. But even prior to the issues going on with Gaza and Hamas, it would seem to me that there was a lot of rancor going on in Israel. So uh, since this seems to be affecting all developed countries that aren't ruthlessly authoritarian in their ability to crack down on technology, I'm inclined to think that it probably is technology, that what we're seeing is something akin to the invention of the printing press, where if I can ramble a bit more. Um, you remember this Martin Luther fella? Yeah, no, he was uh, he was good with nails and doors and ninety nine right. theses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 carpenter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He didn't have new ideas. These had been trotted out previously. What kept happening was the Catholics had burned the guy. They'd set the dude on fire when he said this stuff. Martin Luther had access to a printing press. He was able to, able to disseminate his ideas faster than you could destroy them. That's why the Protestant Reformation was successful. Uh, and it unleashed, you know, the 30 years war and all of this discord going on because it toppled the intellectual gatekeepers that had kept a monolithic, oppressive, mm -hmm. but but stable intellectual environment in Europe over the last thousand years. And I think we're, we're seeing something very similar to that today where the gatekeepers are dying, the internet's killed them. And also at the same time, you're able to form communities with people based on one data point, which is politics, as opposed to previously where you, you know, you might be a Democrat and I'm a Republican, but we know each other from church where we both go to the Freemasons Lodge or whatever. So I, I think that this is largely technological and I do think that we'll solve it, but I think it's going to be a thing where kind of society very broadly is going to have to come up with um, just ways of dealing with all of this that we've, we've not yet devised. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a magic pendulum. Uh, and, and, and I definitely uh, take to heart the fact that you've been researching this and writing that book and, and aren't seeing uh, a clear swing, but I know that there are the printing press, you know, and the reformation, the radio and world wars one and two. Um, so there's, there's, correlations between technological advances, especially communication related technological advances and upheavals. Uh, 
And that feels like this. Uh, we we had a fairly stable society that had gotten used to radio and television, uh, and and we had settled into something uh, rather, you know, rather dealable. Uh, communism fell, and and then we get the '90s, and it's not perfect. You've got you've got problems in the Balkans, but those problems tend to be solving uh, things rather than inflaming things. Uh, and now we're we're headed the other direction, right? We've got wars breaking out in places that haven't had wars in in decades and decades and sometimes centuries. Um, So, yeah, I think you're right that it's technological. Uh, I also subscribe to a lot of of your suppositions as far as uh, it has to do with the ability to find like minded people and and such. And I would add on top of that. Something that I, I've been talking a lot about on a lot of my shows, so I apologize if people are tired of hearing me uh, beat this particular horse, but uh, that principle where we see something three times and we think it's everywhere, uh, you know, that's that's just kind of a psychological fact of, of the human brain is that uh, evolutionarily speaking, if we saw three of something, that was a good indicator there was a lot of it. And whether it was tigers or apples or whatever, it was it was a good heuristic for us. And I think the technological factors you're talking about feed into that. So when you see three people say something, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, you think everyone's saying this. Right. And so you can you can then get mad that everyone's saying this and I need to fight against all these people who are wrong or feel great that everyone's saying it because they agree with you. Well, you you might well be right. And and again, I hope you are. Uh, I I do think that the present umbrage and rancor that we are turmoiled by will likely be solved by society just realizing what's happening and developing norms in order to deal with them. So um with television, for example, and, and Robert Putnam would say that uh, America uh, and modern society never recovered from television. But all the same, um, uh, television comes out and everybody thinks it's great and they watch five hours a day. And now, like at some point, people go, well, maybe it's not a good idea to constantly watch TV. You should go outside. Maybe I'll limit myself to an hour a day. Um, I, I know in my personal life, I think the last time I significantly argued with anybody on Facebook was 2012. And I had a light bulb moment where I went, I am losing friendships over Mitt Romney. This is not what I want to do with my life. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna burn any more bridges over this issue. Uh, and so I don't. I don't argue uh, mm-hmm. on Facebook anymore, and I don't tend to argue on Twitter either. Um, and I, I think a lot of people have kind of checked out of that. And so it could be that as aggregately individuals realize this is not healthy. I find this rather toxic. I need mm-hmm. to. Um, you know, either have a more diverse media diet or I just don't dip into this all the time. It could be that as that's happening, it's empowering that moderate impulse more rather than that valenced firebrand impulse. And I hope that's the case. I'd love it if, if we were at the beginning of that. Well, uh, let's leave it on a hopeful note uh, then. Uh, Heaton, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking time. I know you're a busy guy and I, I appreciate you helping us break all this down. My, you know what? I love coming on PX3, but I don't really like Justin. So this was perfect. This is perfect. Because I got to yeah. hang out with you. I'm so sorry. It's you, only this one time. Uh, <laughs> if folks want to find you, obviously, uh, We're Not Wrong uh, podcast with with Justin uh, and Jen Briney. Uh, but where else can they go? Oh, this is great. I can, I can now dominate this. Uh, hey, Justin's, uh, Justin's listeners. I have a TV show now called Adults Are Talking with Andrew Heaton. You can see what I look like because you've probably thought... That guy sounds like a 58-year-old smoker, and I do look 58, but probably skinnier than you thought, and also taller than people often think. So you can check that out on Adults Are Talking with Andrew Heaton. Uh, You can find that on YouTube or Twitter. I do sketch comedy. I interview people. We've got another episode coming out next week. Um, On the Political Orphanage, which is my main gig, uh, I'm going to give you a treat. You can pick which one of these sounds horrible or good, and then just go to the one you like. Last week, I brought on Gene Epstein, who's the former economics editor at Barron's, to discuss trickle-down economics. Now, if that sounds horrible to you, then you threw your your cat at the computer and shouted, neoliberal shill. <laughs> this week, I have on Jank Uger from the Young Turks. So you can pick whichever direction you want to go and listen to me over on the political orphanage. I suggest playing them both at once. Yeah, they actually they, it's it's like putting a, a dehumidifier and a humidifier on at the same time. That's exactly what happens at an audio level. Uh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Eden. My pleasure. Always a good time talking to Andrew Heaton. 
Uh, and, uh, and, and I love where we went with that, even if it's probably unwarranted optimism that I was foisting upon him, uh, at the end. Uh, thank you all for, uh, being with me. Uh, we've got, uh, one more extra coming for the patrons uh, on Thursday. And of course, uh, I, Justin is always nice enough to let us do a feed drop. So I will have an episode of one of my own shows, uh, coming to you on Friday in the feed. Uh, please, uh, entertain that give it a listen and let me know what you think um politics 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 is written and hosted by me in this particular case tom merritt for dog and pony show audio in austin texas the show was edited by brett stewart you can email justin and secretly tell him what you really think of me at the young american at gmail.com our x account is at px3 tweets uh mine is at ace detect uh you can also find me on mastodon threads and blue sky at ace detect as well the podcast can be found at px3podcast.com support justin with a one-time donation paypal is paypal.me slash pay jury venmo is justin young 20 cash app is px3 cash and of course course you can send gold bars uh gold pressed latinum to p.o box 153184 austin texas 78715 you can always get the bonus content by joining the patreon at takepoliticsseriously.com three dollar tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news we miss on our free podcast schedule ten dollar tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the titanic ten dollar tier ye old pinball shop john dp4 bongo sam john edwin kathy mack and vote gloria young for king of the new world order brian edison jeremy a dog named shuckers sarah Jeannie, matthew dr g neil his nerdiness charles darren idris arslanian berkeley stephen nomadic terran molly's delightful demeanor adam chief andy robert casey paul dustin brad d laser nick wood just another pilot middle-aged mike Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Jen, D. Really, Chopper, Andrew, Adam L., and Gloria Young. Until next time, when you will have the amazing voice of another substitute host. A reminder, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this is the only show that dares to discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.